the eight worldly conditions. You might be familiar with this list. <clears throat> Sex and money? No, not, not quite. It's definitely a worldly condition, but not in this Buddhist list anyway. Uh, the eight worldly conditions that we're all subject to and um, get tossed by until we are really free. Pleasure and pain, loss and gain, fame and shame, and praise and blame. Mm. Those are the things that uh, drive many of us either in avoidance or in grasping after one of those uh, two in each pair. <clears throat> and the Buddha said if you can see how they operate and understand the possibility of not being caught up by them, uh, then this is, is really an indication of, of deep equanimity and, uh, and presence and wisdom. <clears throat> what I wanted to talk about today particularly is praise and blame. <clears throat> Just uh, as we go into it, look in your own life, maybe in recent times, weeks or, or months or even days, you know, if you've been on the receiving end of praise, when that comes to you, how do you take it in? What's your relationship to it? Does it inspire you? Does it make you squirm? Does it give you a puffed out chest? Um, what's your relationship to it when somebody says, fabulous job? I just love the way you, whatever it is. How do you handle that? How do you receive that? And what is it do inside of you as well. Because whatever comes outside is, uh, is one component of the, of the process. What goes on inside um, is something quite, quite different, perhaps. And let's take a look on the other side. If you've been on the receiving end of blame, in recent times. Your relationship, if you're in a primary uh, partnership, or at work, or something that you've done that's upset somebody and they've let you know about it, and you felt either attacked or judged or blamed, what was that experience like? What did you, how did you respond outwardly? And how did it feel inwardly? What was its effect on you? And of course, besides being on the receiving end, sometimes we are transmitters as well. When you 
give praise or you give blame, either one in recent times, just reflect on how it is when you praise somebody. If it's if there's a motive involved, if it just comes spontaneously, does it come easily, does it come sincerely, how is it received? Sometimes you can come from the purest possible intention and somebody has a difficult time with receiving praise. And how does that feel when you are the sender? And on the other end, when you've got some truth to share with somebody, to clear with them, how do you share it? Is there blame? Is there attack? Is there judgment? Is there kind of getting it in just, just so you know how to press that button? Not to judge yourself for it, but just to understand this process and and how we relate to it, both on the on the sending end, has a lot to do with how we relate to it on the receiving end too. <clears throat> so maybe that'll give you a little bit of um, a personal reflection as we explore this. Let's see. I want to start by reading this uh, famous passage from from the Buddha. This is from the Dhammapada. Look how he abused me and beat me, how he threw me down and robbed me. Live with such thoughts and you live in hate. Look how he abused me and beat me, how he threw me down and robbed me. Abandon such thoughts and live in love. In this world, hatred is, has never yet been dispelled by hatred. Only love dispels hatred. This is the law, ancient and inexhaustible. You too shall pass away. Knowing this, how can you quarrel? So the Buddha says, if you really want to come to a sense of peace and happiness inside, don't look outside for the problem. The source of suffering as well as happiness is usually found inside and we can um, easily feel justifiably wronged or um, uh, misunderstood and that sometimes is the case where people do unskillful things because they don't understand. It's not to say that that doesn't happen. It happens all the time. But how we deal with it is really um, within our power to create either more contraction or pain or um, a greater degree of openness and understanding and, and waking up. <clears throat> I have mentioned from time to time and uh, just had these these guys here uh, who teach uh, happiness in this book on happiness um, where they uh, interviewed many uh, ha people who are identified as extremely happy and one of the nine choices in uh, the common denominators of these people is what uh, these authors uh, Rick Foster and Greg Hicks called accountability 
which is, as they define it, the choice to create the life you want to live, to assume full personal responsibility for your actions, thoughts, and feelings, and the emphatic refusal to blame others for your own unhappiness. <clears throat> That's a common denominator of people who really have a, a genuine sense of happiness inside, not to look outside of yourself. There's a couple of quotes. They've got lots of beautiful quotes here. From Erica Zhang, take your life in your own hands and what happens? A terrible thing, no one to blame. <laughs> one more. And Helen Keller. Self-pity is our worst enemy and if we yield to it, we can never do anything wise in this world. From Helen Keller. So, it's really an, an important and common experience that we need to, uh, to work with. And everybody is subject to it and needs to work wisely with it. No matter how good you are, no matter how saintly you are, no matter how wise you are, um, sooner or later you have to deal with this. There's a story from the time of the Buddha you know, a number of times the Buddha was tried, uh, was, uh, there was an attempt to discredit the Buddha. Many, many times people would get jealous, other teachers would get jealous, his cousin tried to kill him a few times, uh, Devadatta, um, and uh, that's part of the package. I mean, look, look at, uh, at Jesus in, in, uh, in the Christian uh, religion. There's this one story about the Buddha where um, these, uh, he came to this town and they were spreading all kinds of rumors about him that he got uh, a woman pregnant and uh, they made her uh, you know, say, yes, yes, my pregnancy is from the Buddha and uh, a number of other really nasty rumors. And the people were quite upset and were, um, uh, were giving a very hard time and threatened to, um, uh, to make life miserable for the monastics as well as the Buddha. And Ananda, his attendant, was very worried and concerned. And he said to, uh, to the Buddha, um, Do you, don't you think we should move on? You know, maybe we should go to another, another village. And the Buddha said, um, no, well, what, what do you think would happen if we went to another village and suppose they, they spread some rumors uh, about me and us? What, which, what will we do then? And he said, well, we could move on again. And he said, no, Ananda, no, Ananda. We just stay here and know the truth within ourselves and the truth will come out sooner or later. And then he said this line, which I've thought of many times, he says, um, those who speak much are blamed. Those who speak little are blamed. Those who remain silent are blamed. In this world, no one escapes from blame. It's a comfort, isn't it? You know? You've got a lot of good company. <clears throat> 
it becomes particularly um, unsettling the more we're attached to our image and how we hope others perceive us, the more we're going to be subject to praise and blame, both hankering after praise and, and avoiding blame. So much gets invested in who we are and what we'd like to project. I was a, a school teacher for a number of years in, uh, in New York City and then out here for couple of years, about 10 years in New York. And um, it, was, it was really clear that the children, and if you ever work with children, especially in, in school situation, in, a, in a, a group situation, the most important thing that it seemed to me uh, was, on the, uh, was on kids' minds were, was not to look like a fool much more than, than being the star. Is, it was an avoidance of making a mistake and having people say, oh, look at that fool. It's scary. It's, there's a great fear that we have of being wrong. And also, it makes us, it's actually one thing that brings a lot of conformity in our culture or socializing in our culture because we don't want to look out of the norm, many of us, not all of us, and some people have the courage to just more and more be themselves and, uh, and let people deal with it, whatever, however they are. But um, you see this in subtle ways, in not so subtle ways. I remember one, one time in my, uh, in my life, it was in my 20s, and I was in this spiritual scene in, in New York. Um, and there was a whole uh, sadhan, a whole uh, course of, of practice that you did. This is, uh, I was studying uh, with Ram Dass in this small scene in New York. And one of the, one of the uh, pieces of, uh, of practice was celibacy. And so for about a year, I was celibate, right? And um, the first few months, it was really interesting to, to see as I'd go out, before I'd go out and go out into the street, I'd you know, be standing there in the mirror, you know, trying to have the best possible appearance I could, as I had most of my life. And I could see myself kind of preening so that maybe as I walked out, you know, somebody would, a, a pretty girl, you know, would look at me and would pass say, oh, there's a good looking guy, you know. Now, I was celibate by this time, right? There was no payoff, but I was still kind of, you know, in that mode of maybe I could get a little bit of, of praise. Oh, I'm okay. Oh, they approve of me. And this went on for like, you know, four or five months or so until I said, you know, Okay, it's nice to look presentable, but what's my motivation? What's my, my hook in there? And when I, when I finally got that there was going to be no payoff, I wasn't going to meet anybody, and nothing was going to come of it, you know, it took a whole um, level of extra energy off of my actions, and I just kind of settled into just being myself without going for any kind of, you know, possible approval leading to something. 
interestingly enough, when I did that, when I was not trying to be attractive or appealing and I just started relating to people just as people, women, men, whatever, all of a sudden it became attractive to you know, people because I didn't want anything from them. And that's often how, how it works. On retreats, I, I've mentioned this uh, in retreat stories. On one retreat, I'd, uh, I would just I would do the, the walking meditation. I'd be all by myself and, and really getting into it, and slow walking, lifting, moving, placing, lifting, moving, placing, and really, really getting into the, the, the grace and the beauty of the practice when uh, sometimes I like to go slowly. And I'd be all by myself and really enjoying it. And all of a sudden, somebody else would come into the room. And I'd have a whole different reason for walking, you know, <laughs> presentation. And I started to use the label after a while, lifting, moving, looking good. Looking good. <laughs> lifting, moving, looking good, looking good. You know. After a while, I was using looking good more than, more than the walking. And again, it was both humbling and very freeing to see those subtle motives that, that I would get for a little bit of pro approval. I'm okay. I'm really okay. <clears throat> How much does it drive you? What are the intentions? What, what payoff might you have? What kind of hook at the end of your actions, either for approval and acceptance or for uh, imputing blame outside of yourself. Really, when uh, the Buddha talks about renunciation, you know, this is one of the, the valued practices. One, one way of thinking of renunciation is letting go of those hooks behind our actions where there's, you, there's not any extra baggage, you're just naturally doing what you do without an ulterior motive. It's tremendously freeing. That is a great renunciation, and uh, the joy is liberating to let go of those motives. Because, you know, people can feel it anyway. You can, you can sense when somebody is kind of making a presentation and, and wanting to you know, appear a little bit more than who they are or appear okay and win your approval, that in itself keeps you from really being open and na as natural uh, to them as if they're just themselves. It's very impressive when someone is just themselves and not wanting anything from you including approval. So there's this paradox that, that, that happens. The more you want it, the more you want that praise, the less impressive you are and the more resistance. The less you want it, the less you're trying to impress and you're just being yourself becomes very impressive. Right? So, <clears throat> Also, when you're looking outside of yourself for praise or you're uh, trying to avoid blame, but we'll just stay with praise for a little while, what you do is you give away your power. 
because then your happiness and sense of ease and peace is dependent on somebody else's reaction. Just imagine what it would be like to not have that as a motivation. I, I remember um, being with this really wonderful Indian uh, teacher, Punjaji, W.H. Punja, and he's sometimes called Papaji. There's some books that have been uh, written about him. Um, and uh, when I went to spend time, this is in 1990, he has a way, or had a way, he's passed away, he has a, had a way of opening up your heart so that fear was not as operative. And it was uh, those who were touched in that way with him had this uh, a very common experience of just having fear go away. And Sylvia, actually, Sylvia and I uh, uh, went together and uh, we had a great time in Seymour, her husband, too. Um, and uh, she had definitely, she was touched a lot by being around Punjaji. And when her fear was not operative, she noticed that worry disappeared for a while. And she said, it is this, it's, I have this on videotape, she said, would say to him, you know, I'm, even, I'm looking for worry and I can't find it, you know. <laughs> that was how it affected her. And for me, when that, there was that absence of fear, I noticed this, also this absence of trying to figure out either consciously or unconsciously what other people wanted from me. It just wasn't there. And it took me a little while to figure out why I was so much lighter, you know, and then I realized, oh, there's not this, an iota of, of, a, of a wondering how I'm coming off, you know, what I can do to please somebody or what I can do to make it better, or to, to, to fix them, or, you know, it was like completely gone, and it was, um, the word enlightenment, it wasn't quite enlightenment, but it was lightenment. It was much, much lighter. So I also felt this, this power that I hadn't felt on that, in that level before, because I wasn't externally referencing my, um, my life. It kind of, oh, it, it made me ask, what do I want? That was a unique question. What do I really want? What do I need here? You know? I mean, I would generally get around to that question after unconsciously trying to figure out what everybody else wanted, but coming back or coming to my own sense of self was, uh, was new and powerful. In a way, when you're both looking for, uh, for approval or when you're looking for the problem out there, when that other person is causing you suffering, uh, you create that kind of victim stance. It's a setup for being a victim. Yeah, those. Do you have any idea what 
would either doing or being to actually affect this oh. draining away of fear? What Punjaji was doing to... That's a whole other story. He, he was, uh, he had, he was living in that space of just being and was such a powerful transmitter of it just through a lot of love and through very, uh, sometimes very incisive dialogues. But just his energy kind of tuned you into a, that same kind of energy and it resonated within you. And at times, people had the experience of seeing that that's who they are as well. It wasn't just him, it was like he emanated this energy and could remind you who you are. So it was an energy phenomenon rather than that he said or did something. Uh, it, was, it was on many levels. Sometimes it was through dialogue, sometimes it was through energy, sometimes it was... Um, you know, through a, another understanding or just opening your heart, you know. And there's people who can do that. You know, I, I don't want it to seem like you need somebody to do that. That's one, that's one path. It can also happen uh, intrapersonally on retreat. And I, I have had those experiences before that time on retreat and since on retreat, um, but, in, but not in my waking time over such an extended period and just a powerful hit. But we can access those, those places in many different ways. This is just one that, that was striking to me. So as you, uh, as you let go of being a victim, you also let go of um, magnetizing people either blaming you or not uh, not fulfilling your your wishes because the more you're also afraid of being blamed you know that has a particular effect on on those around you as well <clears throat> and then there's also uh, blaming yourself that's a whole other component that many of us have to deal with and probably for many people that's the that's the most challenging one. Oh, why aren't I better at this? Why aren't I more kind? Why aren't I more compassionate? You know, you jerk, you know, when are you going to get it together? You know, or woe is me. And when you get into that kind of blaming, which can be self-judgment or self-pity, when you feel sorry for yourself, or you feel small or young, again, it's a disempowering. It's not seeing that you have what you need to be free. Whereas if instead you see your shortcomings or you see the, the places that you still have to grow, there can be a sense of compassion for where you are and where you, you can grow more. And there's a Instead, there can be a feeling of caring for this frightened place inside. And that which is caring, when you have compassion for yourself, it means that some aspect of your being cares about some other aspect. And it's the aspect that cares 
that you can more and more nurture. So it's, it's really um, a very important practice to develop true compassion for yourself because then you start to more and more come from that place of a wise, caring being that can hold that frightened child, usually. And there's a, a strength that comes from that as well. <clears throat> when your actions are based on approval or blame, <clears throat> generally it's that you are not quite enough inside. And when you feel that you're not quite enough inside, the truth is you could line six billion people up one after another who come through and say, you're really okay, you're really okay, you're really okay, and it won't be enough. You, don't, you won't get to the point where you finally get, oh, they say I'm really okay, so I must be really okay until you feel you're really okay. That's just the way it works. It's, a, it's a, an unquenchable quest. So this is where the empowerment comes that, you're, that you see not to look outside of yourself for wholeness, but to come to terms with it right in here. I, I don't know if I said this uh, uh, when I was here last week, about meeting yourself? Do we talk about that? Do we say it? You know, if you, if you met somebody who had your taste, somebody who had your sense of humor, somebody who had your take on the world, who really, really got it, who really understood where you were coming from, how would you feel about meeting somebody like that? Love. Love. I'd be ecstatic. Wouldn't you? Somebody who really gets it, where you're coming from, your taste, your sense of humor, your understanding of your fears and all that. If you met that person, you'd be, you'd met your best friend. The only problem is when that person is inside of your skin, then somehow, you know, yuck. I don't, you know, why am I this way or am I that way? It's just, you know, uh, Einstein has this expression I love called an optical delusion of consciousness <laughs> that makes it feel that while you're inside, you're not so worthy or good. But if you stepped outside of yourself and you're, you saw somebody like you, there would be tremendous joy and love and kinship and camaraderie. So it's really a practice of kind of stepping outside of your normal take on yourself to see who you really are. <clears throat> and that's what comes when we see through this identification with self. What we do is take ourselves to be a certain way and then we concretize that. That's our image, that's our self-image. But really, we are much more fluid than any one way that we see in ourselves. We have joy, we have sorrow, we have fear, we have love, we have all parts of ourselves. 
But when we solidify it into, oh, this is me, and you think of yourself as this fixed being, this noun, instead of thinking of yourself like a verb, you know, just imagine, just relate to yourself as a verb. You are a field of experience, a process. Then when you're relating to yourself as some kind of fixed being that you keep on recreating with the images and the thoughts you have about yourself, then everything gets solidified and you need to try to fix and make better. Rather than seeing yourself as a process, there's an ease and, a, and an openness and a flow that comes from that. This is uh, from Nisargadot, uh, who wrote I Am That, uh, an extraordinary book. If you want to hang out with a being who's free and just get a sense of, of what that consciousness is like, this is, this is the book, I would say, as much as any that I can think of. I Am That. He says, it's dialogues. <clears throat> he says, um, you cannot possibly say that you are what you think yourself to be. Your ideas about yourself change from day to day and from moment to moment. Your self-image is the most changeful thing you have. It is utterly vulnerable at the mercy of a passerby. A bereavement, the loss of a job, an insult, and your image of yourself, which you call your person, changes deeply. You know what you are, you know what you are, you to know what you are, you first must investigate and know what you are not. And to know what you are not, you must watch yourself carefully, rejecting all that does not necessarily go with the basic fact, I am. That is, just feeling life coming through you before it becomes an I am this or an I am that. The idea is I am I am born at a given place, at a given time from my parents, and now I'm so-and-so, living at, married to, father of, employed by, and so on, are not inherent in the sense I am. Our usual attitude is of I am this, separate, separate consistently, and persevere, oh, separate consistently and perseveringly the I am from this or that, and try to feel what it means to be, to just be, without being this or that. All our habits go against it, and the task of fighting them is long and hard sometimes, but clear understanding helps a lot. The clearer you understand that on the level of the mind, you can be described in negative terms only, the quicker you will come to the end of your search and realize your limitless being. So this, really the, uh, the cure, the way to cut through this praise and blame is to see who you really are beyond the package beyond the self-image, beyond the thoughts you say about yourself or hope that others don't see. And the funny thing is, the more you hope they don't see something, the more you're busy hiding and don't let them see who you really are. That's just the way it works. You know? I hope they don't see how anxious I am 
how insecure I am, guess what gets seen? Whereas if you can let go of that and really get in touch with who you are deeply, the more you allow that to come out. And that's where the practice is really at the heart of this. So again, I don't want to uh, mislead you and think that you've got to come meet some kind of um, dazzling being. The practice shows beyond the story, beyond the drama, beyond the presentation, who you are in the silence of mind. When there's real silence and you're not trying to impress, when you can simply be deeply and you feel life coming through you, there's nothing more that you need. That cuts through praise and blame. And as we practice, we more and more tap into that sense of who we really are. And we become expressions of life for other people to be the same. Because when you're around somebody who's just themselves, it allows you to be just yourself. And people will praise you. you know. People will think you're just the greatest. You know. Then you've got to deal with that praise and not identify with it. Mm-hmm. And there's a whole art in receiving praise, too. Here's a, uh, a passage from uh, the Buddha, actually from Ananda. The woman at the well. Have you heard this? This is it's really lovely. Ananda, the attendant of the Buddha, having been sent by the Lord on a mission, passed by a well near a village. And seeing Pakati, a young outcast woman, asked her for water to drink. Pakati, she was an outcast, remember, untouchable. Pakati said, O monk, I am too humbly born to give you water to drink. Do not ask any service of me, lest your holiness be contaminated for I am of low caste. And Ananda replied, I ask not for caste, but for water. And the woman's heart leaped joyfully, and she gave Ananda water to drink. Ananda thanked her and went away, but she followed him at a distance. Having heard that Ananda was a disciple of the Buddha, the woman went to the Blessed One and said, O Lord, help me, and let me live in the place where your disciple Ananda dwells, so that I may see him and minister unto him, for I love Ananda. And the Blessed One understood the emotions of her heart, and he said, Pakati, your heart is full of love, but you do not understand your own sentiments. It is not Ananda that you love, but his kindness. Accept then the kindness you have seen him practice towards you and practice it towards others. Pakati, though you are born low caste, you will be a model for noble men and noble women. Swerve not from the path of justice and righteousness and you will outshine the royal glory of queens and kings. So she fell in love with his purity of heart and his kindness. And sometimes people objectify that and say, oh, 
yes, I love you. But actually, they're falling in love with that purity of heart. It happens sometimes when we encounter the Dharma. When I first heard the teachings, Joseph uh, Goldstein in 1974, and I, I, I've mentioned here before, you know, I was so deeply moved and inspired, uh, and I, I was like, I finally found what I was looking for. But for a while, all I could do was just, you know, gaze at Joseph. Wow, <laughs> he is so cool, you know. He is so wise. He is so. And it took me a while to realize it was just like this. I fell in love with the Dharma, and I had objectified it. And I and I have deep gratitude for Joseph. And you know, he knows I love him, and he is my main benefactor. But not to mistake that love you have for um, out there and for really understanding that it's touching a place inside of you. Now to be on the receiving end of that praise, whether it's in that situation or in something that you do, okay, how can we accept praise graciously? Because it's a very important skill. The, the purity of the receiver in a gift really empowers the merit that the giver gives. So, you know, if, if, you can, if you say to somebody, you know, oh, thank you, I'm so grateful, and they say, oh, no, stop, it's nothing. Don't, you know, stop it, because they feel uncomfortable with it. How does it feel for you? you kind of feel yucky and, oh, gosh, maybe I shouldn't have, that was kind of stupid. But if somebody says, after you say, thank you, I'm so grateful, and they say something like, oh, I'm so glad, oh, you're most welcome, I'm so glad, there's a kind of joy in your having give that praise. A lot of times it's easier to give praise than to receive it. And so I would really encourage you, when somebody expresses their gratitude, to take it graciously and rather than identify with it, oh, yes, I am really hot stuff, to feel the wholesomeness of it, to feel the, the, the sincerity of your action that, that touched them and not take ownership of it. If you can do that, then you give them a real gift of of having given the gift and you receiving it purely. The Buddha talks about thinking about wholesome states, reflecting on wholesome states. He says, uh, I, I think I've mentioned this before, about generosity as one of these different equipments of mind. He says, thinking I'm generous, one gains delight, one gains inspiration in the Dhamma, one uh, gladdens the heart. Now that's as you do a generous act, he says, think about how good it feels to be generous. He's not saying, aren't I a great guy for being so generous? That's just taking ownership of it and reifying that sense of self. But if instead you can feel the joy of how good it feels as generosity comes through you, then you're feeling it on the way out as well as, as, well as uh, on the way in. Oh yes, this feels so good. And in the same way when somebody says, you have been so helpful and so um, 
uh, I'm so grateful for you, to take that in and not squirm out of it and just feel good that you've touched somebody without getting a puffed up chest from it and graciously say, oh, I'm so glad. You know, that, that completes the circuit. <clears throat> as far as receiving blame, I'll just mention a few more words and then we'll have discussion. As far as receiving blame, when you're on the receiving end of blame from others, that's a tricky one. It's really hard, isn't it? How can we do that skillfully? The first thing we want to do is put up a barrier and say, no, get away. And understandably, if the energy is really strong and intense, we need to protect ourselves. But beyond the protection, it can be a practice how to skillfully work with that kind of energy coming to you. And I think it starts with trying to understand the other person's reality. Because whatever they're feeling towards you, if they're blaming, there's probably some hurt in there. There's probably some pain. And if you can tune into the pain rather than to what's coming towards you, there's a bit more of a chance of having compassion. Particularly if you can realize what your part in it is, if there's been anything, any piece that you've played that maybe you can wake up to, maybe you can learn from. And if it's quite clear in your heart that you had the best of intentions and were misunderstood, then that's something to take in too and still understand that no one escapes from blame. But it's take, it takes a real honest look to see what in there you, your part might have been in the dance. Anyway, what can I learn from it? And if it's nothing else than learning that people misunderstand and there's a lot of pain that this person is feeling and you've done what you could and then find the nearest exit, as the Dalai Lama says, after you've done everything you could, you know, <laughs> you know, then that might be the appropriate thing. But if you can listen to the person, I mean, that, that's really the skillful way to go. Let me hear what happened. And just trying to slip into their reality and understand there's a whole different dynamic in the exchange. Ajahn, uh, um, Ajahn Jamnian was here a couple of, uh, uh, a month and a half or so ago, a couple of months ago. And I, I came for one day and it was amazing. He told this story. Um, he's this really high, happy guy. Right? And he told this story about um, this fellow in, uh, in, his, in his area who had been paid by uh, communists or by in local insurgents who felt threatened by Ajahn Jamnian. Uh, and he was paid to spread propaganda, bad press about Ajahn Jamnian. Right? And uh, he'd be on, uh, on a truck with a loudspeaker, right? <laughs> going through town and saying bad things about Ajahn Jamnian, right? And his Ajahn Jamnian's, um, uh, his, his monks and, uh, and, and students and were, were very distressed. You know, this guy is spreading false words about you. 
and uh, and Ajahn Germany, and you know he didn't care all that much. But finally, he he met this guy, and this guy bowed down to him, and he and he he had a private audience with him, and he said, "Please forgive me. I feel so bad. I." I've been spreading these words about you. I've been paid to spread to spread propaganda about you uh, because I'm very poor, and it's the the only way that I can send my daughter to school through the money that I'm getting to uh, uh, to spread these rumors about you. And Ajahn Jamian, you know, was was delighted to you know to hear and. Uh, you know, and when when he'd hear about this, you know, he he'd say, uh, and he'd see this guy he'd say, "Go ahead, you're doing your job, you know, <laughs> do it well, you know." So what are you talking about? It's okay, you know. He's he's got his job to do, and I've got mine, you know. He was completely unruffled, because he knew in his heart where he was coming from. It was it was extraordinary, uh, and talking about it and laughing, and he'd see this guy, and at the end, his daughter went. Finally completed uh, her graduation, and they had a celebration, and it was, uh, you know, it was it was a big joke for him to be that free. That's something to aspire to. But when you know who you are within yourself, then that blame and praise doesn't have that same effect. So um, I'll just close with with this piece that I, I came across, um, and then we can have a discussion. This is called the invitation. Have, has this been read here recently? By Oriah Mountain Dreamer, Indian elder. And a lot of it, praise and blame, comes up. She says, It doesn't interest me what you do for a living. I want to know what you ache for. And if you dare of meeting your heart's longing. It doesn't interest me how old you are. I want to know if you will risk looking like a fool for love, for your dreams, for the adventure of being alive. It doesn't interest me what planets are squaring your moon. I want to know if you've touched the center of your own sorrow, if you've been opened by life's betrayals, or have become shriveled and closed from fear of further pain. I want to know if you can sit with pain, mine or your own, without moving to hide it or fade it or fix it. I want to know if you can be with joy, mine or your own, if you can dance with wildness and let ecstasy fill you to the tips of your fingers and toes without cautioning us to be careful, be realistic, or to remember the limitations of being human. It doesn't interest me if the story you're telling me is true. I want to know if you can disappoint another to be true to yourself, if you can bear the accusation of betrayal and not betray your own soul. I want to know if you can be faithful and therefore trustworthy. I want to know if you can see beauty even when it is not pretty every day and if you can source your life from God's presence. I want to know if you can live with failure, yours and mine, and still stand on the edge of a lake and shout to the silver of the full moon, yes. It doesn't interest me to know where you live or how much money you have. I want to know if you can get up after the night of grief and despair, weary and bruised to the bone, and do what needs to be done for the children. It doesn't interest me to know who you are, how you came to be here. 
I want to know if you will stand in the center of the fire with me and not shrink back. It doesn't interest me where or what or with whom you have studied. I want to know what sustains you from the inside when all else falls away. I want to know if you can be alone with yourself and if you truly like the company you keep in the empty moments. Uh, I can make some copies. So, to be brave enough and courageous enough to just be yourself, that's the prescription for praise and blame. So, here, if you uh, just, thanks, Aaron. Back there. Back there. Thanks. I often. I don't really understand, I mean, on some really deep level, I really don't understand why I meditate and why I seek out other people who meditate. I, I don't really understand it. I do it because it's sort of built into my life, but I don't really understand it. And um, a friend of mine came down from Ukiah with her daughter because her daughter had to have some major surgery. And um, she stayed with friends, and I had made a plan to meet her so that while her daughter was in surgery, she'd have somebody to be with so she wouldn't be so alone in the anxiety of the event. And um, we had a conversation. <laughs> and she told me where the surgery was going to take place. But I had had a previous idea of where I, th I thought it was going to be at UCSF. And so I went to USC UCSF, and I inquired from all the people there about um, where this pediatric surgery could be. And they couldn't come up with you know, where this was, and I was feeling very frustrated. And I had her cell phone number, and I tried it three or four times, but couldn't get through. And I was feeling the painfulness of having good intention and very bad execution. <laughs> and um, I was also very hungry, I hadn't eaten, so I went to lunch, and there, sitting next to me was clearly an, two brothers, an older brother sort of watching out for his younger brother while something was happening in the hospital. And the younger brother went away probably to go to the bathroom. And in the meantime, the older brother started doing these sort of strange things on the table. And I looked at him, and all of a sudden it occurred to me that he was practicing his piano on the table. And I said to him, I couldn't help I said, are you practicing piano? And he looked at me, and he sort of you know, startled. And he said, yes, I'm doing my exercises. And I said, how really convenient that you, know, you can take this portable opportunity wherever you go. He looked a little startled. And I felt for me this incredible pleasure of connection with a complete stranger and appreciation. And then the mother came and collected the two children. And they were just about to take off and they were walking away. When I noticed, of course, that the younger boy, who was only like four, had left his jacket. So I said, wait, the jacket. So I looked startled and they looked on the scene and left the jacket. And the older boy turned to me and said, thank you very much. And there was this sense in me which felt, even though I had not been able to be in touch with my friend. I had not been able to find her. I didn't know where it was. It turned out she was at a totally different hospital. And you know, I was able to connect later in the day. But I had had, for me, in fact, what was for me this incredibly satisfying experience. I would gotten what I needed, was, which was to make myself available mm -hmm. to what was really happening. Mm -hmm. you know, and this was what really was happening. Mm -hmm. What I had hoped to be able to do was not within my power mm -hmm. to do. 
But I was able to be present. Mm -hmm. I was able to connect. And I was able, even for a brief moment, with a complete stranger to have a meaningful interaction. Mm -hmm. And that possibility, I think, is why I meditate. Beautiful. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> I sort of uh, feel that it's it's tough to just be yourself in the world, and and not to be concerned really, um, or have the space I guess available to uh, not be concerned about approval. And uh, I guess in my experience, it seems that um, whenever I am trying to be myself, I'm met with disapproval and, and with uh, resistance and it's not really, it doesn't seem quite welcoming. So I'm wondering, like, uh, I guess how to continue to try to be like that uh, in, in a world, I guess, that I don't feel it's very welcome. Hmm. Let me ask, when you're around uh, close friends or people who know you really well, <clears throat> are you yourself around them? Um, well, my experience, I think, with my family... It wasn't really encouraged. Family might be a, a different story. So. <laughs> We're talking about friends here. Right. Well, I think that's, um, I think uh, not having that experience uh, from my original family, it's probably hindered that with my own choices as an adult. Uh -huh. Are there any relationships where you're, you're truly just yourself? Um, it seems like... Uh, when I'm involved with somebody romantically, that that's what I tr want to do, and then I realize that I'm not. It's not really accepting. So I'm obviously choosing people that um, will reflect to me that it's not okay to be myself. Mm -hmm. And and good friends outside of romantic relationships. Um, I still find myself limiting. Uh, I, I just I think I guess I, I choose people that where I can't fully engage in that mm -hmm. because I really don't feel a hundred percent natural or, or being myself around uh, people in my life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's and it is it's hard for many of us to find find uh, ways and, and situations where we can be ourselves. But I would say, I would guess there probably are times when you are just yourself and it comes through. And uh, the more you can pay attention and be present for how that feels, um, the more you are nourishing that. It is hard to be ourselves, but the alternative is trying to be somebody that we're not, which is you know, a very <laughs> losing kind of situation. So you might take an experiment for just a period of, of time with certain people who you feel a bit safer and see what it's like to just, rather than looking outside, just get in touch with what's true for you right now and experiment for just short periods of time generally with our good friends or with people we feel really close to, that's one of the most magical aspects of a close friendship, that 
we don't have to be anything else than, than who we are. And often when we're with people who we'd like to be our friends, we think we need to be just a little bit more. But it's, it, it, it's, it, there's a paradox there. When you're just yourself, there's something very free about it. Even if yourself means nervous or shy or whatever, um, it's hard, but the alternative is, uh, is, is even more painful. So I'd say maybe if you have that kind of focus in your practice to just learn more and more to be who you are and perhaps get to know who you are in the silence, say, of, of, in, of practice, of intensive practice. Have you done retreats before? Uh huh. You know, you might experience it might be worth your while to do a bit to do a longer retreat, and, which I see as one aspect of, of that process is making friends with yourself. And as you see all the different parts of yourself and really learn to appreciate who you are, that starts to to carry over. So practice is a, is a really good uh, doorway for that. And you know, I I wish you. Luck in the journey. You're not alone. And I was thinking on my way up, I was, <laughs> I was very frustrated, and I, I, I got to doing some praying, some thinking on my way up, and I thought, and it just clicked, almost just when I got here, that um, she's afraid of dying, and she's afraid of death. And it's so interesting to me that I'm just beginning to love myself, and I'm just beginning to become friends with myself, mm. and yet she's, she's dreading the end of her life, it seems and wants me to, to be there for that. It's very difficult. <laughs> so um, I just thought I would comment on yeah, that. Thanks. And once you underst- as you are understanding that, does that shift your relationship? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.